Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Welcome to Hoopsology. My name is Justin Goodrum, and along with Matt Thomas, our goal is to bring you quality basketball content from all over the hoops world. Before we jump into the show, if you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast to receive our latest episodes from journalists, authors, athletes from all over the basketball world. If you have a comment or question, please email us at hoopsologypod at gmail.com. Now enjoy the show. She covers the Washington Wizards and the Washington Mystics for the Washington Post. We welcome Ava Wallace onto Hoopsology. How's it going, Ava? Pretty well. How are you guys? Doing pretty well. Thank you. And thanks for joining the show. And I think the timing's appropriate because <laughs> over the past couple of days, Bradley Beal's been trending on Twitter along with Tony Kornheiser <laughs> in terms of this, this, all this, um, I'll go as far to say conspiracy talk for Ben Simmons because I, I swear I've heard him with every single team in the NBA in some kind of yep. wild trade. So you covered the Wizards pretty closely, and you have close knowledge of what's happening. So in your mind, what do you make of this whole Bradley Bill Ben Simmons situation? And then number two, do you actually think Ben Simmons would be a fit on the Wizards at all? Um. So what do I make? It's so funny when whenever anyone says like Bradley Beal's trending on Twitter, I'm like, oh, I feel like I'm gonna wake up like in the middle of the night, cold sweat. Like every single <laughs> night. It does feel like Brad has been trending on some type of social media for trade. Obviously, he's just such a magnet for the trade rumors, sure. um, for everything. I, I'm not sure. You know, the Wizards are monitoring. Um, I did ask. Uh, we talked to the GM today in, in a press conference, and I'm, I've asked him separately. You know, are you kind of looking at that and, and seeing and they, of course, monitor everything that goes on in the East because there's a trickle-down effect. Um, but I'm, I'm actually not quite sure how Ben Simmons would fit into this Wizards roster, um, mainly because I don't, I literally don't know where he would slot in. And, of course, for a guy like Ben Simmons, hypothetically, you kind of make room for him and, and put him aside a couple of different players. But I'm um, I'm not sure. You know, the Wizards got an up-close-and-personal look at, at uh, Ben Simmons during the playoffs last year, so I'm not sure how hot they are on him. But... He's one of those guys that you always have to be interested in, much like how everyone's always going to be calling after Brad. Um, the Wizards can offer him on October 1st, I believe, and they'll be they'll be dealing with calls and phone calls and everything like that, trade rumors all throughout the entire season. So it's Brad Watch again, Brad Watch 2.0. <laughs> so what do you make of, I guess, Ben Simmons overall as a player? Because seeing this trade on paper seems, I don't know, pretty far-fetched. I think Bradley Beal's the superior player overall by far. So I don't. I think in my mind, it just seems, in terms of equal value, I don't really understand really how that trade works from a Washington Wizards perspective. In your mind, this, you, you said that the team saw Ben Simmons up and close. What can he offer in, like, in terms of his, I guess, skills that he has? And Based on kind of his attitude problems and all the turmoil he has, are is <laughs> would the Wizards be down as to deal with that drama that would become in their way of this trade were to happen? I think almost every team in the NBA is is pretty drama averse, um, as or at least they'll say that certainly. But um, you know, they Ben Simmons and Brad, like you said, from the culture point of view, I don't know if you could find kind of two more opposite guys. Brad is 
laid back. The wizards love him. And for good reason, he really gets along with, with most people as long as you work hard pretty much. So he's kind of the perfect franchise cornerstone for them where they're, you know, on the younger side, they're not crazy young anymore, but they don't have anybody over 30. Um, so he's the franchise cornerstone. And honestly, for the type of contract that, that Ben has, I don't know that you want to tie up all that money after just having gotten off of John Wall and Russell Westbrook's contract, getting a bunch of pieces in return. I don't know if that's where they're interested in throwing all of their money and then saying like, hey, we've been building around Bradley Beal for all these years. All of a sudden, whoop, we're going to flip and do an entire kind of identity shift as well that goes along with it. And, you know, Ben Simmons, he's, got, he's one of the better defensive players in the league when he wants to be, when he can turn it on. Um, but Bradley Beal can do just about anything you want on offense and work really well with just about any anybody. And Ben Simmons clearly, you know, has more of those chemistry issues in certain teams, in certain situations. And I mean, Bradley Beal, off ball, on ball, whatever you want him to do, he, he's going to do it. So I think that's where the, well, I know that's where the Wizards are focused for sure right now. And Ava, going to Bradley Beal, um, I, I guess I've been not only impressed at his development, but I've also been impressed in many ways in 2021 in the NBA, his seeming loyalty to the Wizards franchise. I mean, there there have been times where he's been asked, you know, point blank. Um, there's been several opportunities where he could have been a major trade asset, mm -hmm. um, but he has remained pretty firm in his stance. And you can correct me if I'm wrong in, in recent news, but firm in his stance that, you know, he, he wants to be a wizard. He wants to be there. Can you speak to his connection with that franchise and, and why it may be that he feels that way. Sure. Yeah. I think you're absolutely right in that Brad is not your typical kind of NBA all-star guy and not your typical all NBA guy. He is extraordinarily low key in both on the basketball court and off the basketball court in life. He's not a guy who needs all that much, but the wizards have been really pretty good about giving him what he asks when he wants it. And, you know, Tommy Shepard, the GM has made it very clear. It's not like Bradley Beal is dictating things, but you know, if you look at the guys that they picked up in the off season, they're definitely guys that Bradley Beal has either had good relationships with, is going to play well with, is going to kind of mesh well with chemistry wise on court. And he has had input. Tommy Shepard has, he always says, he calls it straight line communications with Brad. Um, so they've, you know, when they made the commitment and said, it's not John, it's you. Um, they've stuck by that. And they did a really good thing getting him bringing in Russell Westbrook last year. Uh, by all accounts, Brad really enjoyed playing with Russell Westbrook. I mean, if you if you give this guy a maniacally hard worker, he's going to be fine with it, uh, no matter what the personality is. And it, that trade did a lot for the Wizards. It got them a little bit into the national spotlight as the as the season wore on. You know, they were one of the most interesting stories in the NBA. That's something that matters to Brad as well. He's not a dumb guy. He's a really smart um I was going to call him a kid, but he's the same age as me. He's a really smart player in terms of he's looking at how he's viewed in the NBA in addition to the stuff that the work that he puts in on court. So um, they do have a good relationship with him. I mean, they drafted him on his 19th birthday. This is the only franchise he's known. He's kind of a homebody like that, where he he likes having those long-term relationships. And they've done just about everything that they could have other than win a lot more games the past two years. But I think Brad also understands a lot of that. Um was out of, you know, the coaching staff. A lot of it had to do with kind of old issues in the Wizards for culture. And they've changed that a lot too. So they've got a lot of things going in terms of their relationship with Bradley Beal. And so, uh, so far it's paid off. Now the question is, he's got about 
what is it, 50 million extra dollars waiting for him on the other side if he doesn't sign the extension. So um, it's kind of, can he find a place that that fits really well that's going to pay him that money where he's going to go and just make, you know, astronomical salary. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's interesting where the Wizards have gone, you know, with the Russell Westbrook trade, mm-hmm. kind of fulfilling that wish of his to send him out to L.A. I said right away on day one, I think the Wizards won this trade. I like the young, the younger assets that they got in that trade. What is your sense of, of where they're going this upcoming season and what, what's kind of the main focus with this team? Because, you know, if you're intending on keeping Bradley Beal, I don't think you can really say we're in full-on rebuild mode. you got to do something with him. So where do you see them on their trajectory? And do you expect them to be kind of in that play-in tournament hunt? Um, they should, at the very least, they should make the play-in with the talent that they have. Um, you know, they kind of checked up all of their boxes for the offseason. I think Tommy Shepard and, and his whole team should feel really good about what they did. They definitely got better on defense. They added wing help and they added a lot of depth. If they can stay healthy, which has been a problem for them um, with key players going down like Rui Hachimura, Thomas Bryant, their starting center, broke uh, towards the ACL last year. Yeah. If they can stay healthy. They should be able to be kind of right above the play in tournament. The East is going to be good this year. It's good. Well, it's going to be better this year. I feel like the East is, is quite, you know, inch playing. Yeah, I see Denver over there. You're like, oh. East. <laughs> um, I'm with you, Ava. Yeah. I'm with you. I, mean, I think the East listen. is legit. <laughs> well, the only way they can Me go too, is up, agree. right? Yeah. Depending on, on what, <laughs> what Miami looks like with, with Lowry down there and everything like that, um, they should be able to kind of not have to be fighting for their lives at the end of the season. I, in terms of, I totally agree with you. If, if you're keeping Brad now, you cannot be leaning towards a full rebuild. That being said, they got a lot of assets back in that Russell Westbrook trade that are valuable guys, guys who've won championships, guys who can defend a lot of really good shooters. They drafted well. So they have pieces if they do need to pivot and make a rebuild. But honestly, that's kind of, at this point, the worst case scenario, because then you have to look and say, what were the last two years for? Were we just treading water here? So they're, um, they've got a lot of eggs in that Bradley Beal basket for sure. Ava, I wanted to ask you about Westbrook. He's a pretty polarizing player in the league. And just with you covering him, is he misunderstood? Or do you think his reputation that he has with the public is actually facts? Is there something that like the fans are missing? Is there a disconnect in, in terms of Westbrook, the person, and his persona among NBA fans? You know, we got a really, I would say, as the um, one of the other kind of regular beat writers with the Wizards, Fred Katz, covered him a lot in Oklahoma City and got a very different Russell Westbrook than the one we got. The Russell Westbrook we got, you know, 32 years old, he's older, he kind of, looking back, you have to kind of think like, okay, he's here to reunite with Scott Brooks, his, his former coach that he loves. It might not be a long-term situation, but he's in a good spot. Um, he was pretty good to us for media, I'll say, especially over Zoom. Um, we all kind of knew, okay, you got to ask Russ one question, then you got to get out. The the brave souls who dared ask him many follow-ups got, got a little bit of the heat sometimes. But in all, I, I wish I could say that I covered him more deeply, but over Zoom, I just don't think you get the full kind of Russell Westbrook experience, honestly. Yeah, he was a little prickly at times, but he was never, he was never more than... Um, I guess a prickly kind of kind of veteran who isn't here to deal with BS. But I just kept thinking like, man, I would just like love to get in this guy's closet or like actually meet him one day, all the kind of personality things. That was what I really, really missed about, about covering him last year. Cause the wizards, you know, 
not the biggest personalities in the NBA, I think. So it was fine covering them over Zoom. But uh, Russ was one I would have definitely liked to get to know better. But I don't know if the fans are missing anything. I mean, the thing about Russ is he's got such ardent fans. Like on the other side of the people who cannot stand him and hate him yeah. are people who like will live and die for this guy. So it's he's one of the more polarizing figures in the league. And I kind of wish I got to, to know him a little bit better, honestly. I wish I could you give you a better answer. <laughs> oh, no, that's fine. You, and you mentioned this covering, um, this interviewing Westbrook over Zoom. And now that things from a um, league standpoint are getting back to normal in terms of fans being actually back in, in attendance, I wanted to ask you, are there any pandemic um, restrictions that were placed on, at, on you and your colleagues in terms of covering the league that are happening now still that you have to kind of jump over? And do you see that kind of, being permanent just in terms of the way it works out for the players and media. I know there was a lot of restrictive access in yeah. terms of you guys as, as journalists. Um, is there like a, a fear that that might still stay the course even as the pandemic improves? Oh yeah. There's a huge, I think the biggest thing that people across, I, I believe the only league right now that has actual open locker rooms is the NHL. Cause the hockey guys are always like, sure, come on in. We're all from <laughs> Canada. It doesn't matter. We're very nice. um, that is something that I, I cannot tell you how important that is after a game to be able to go in a locker room, not only see the mood of the team, but see who's gotten the heck out of there really fast, see what guys are kind of like when you're not talking to them, when they're just listening to their, to their teammates. Um, it's, it's huge in, in understanding for us what a team is like and, and kind of presenting an accurate description of a team to the people who read our stuff. I a hundred percent understand why people don't want us in there because some stuff kind of goes down in the locker room sometimes. Um, but it's also, it's just so hard to, capture the kind of character or the flavor of the team to see who are the who the team leaders are to see which guys you know respect which other guys like something that we learned at the end of the um so there were separate locker rooms last year even for the players it was like you could only go in there three at a time or something like that i can't remember the number but we learned at the end of the year like they had switched to russell's locker room to be or locker time to be with the rookies so they could watch just watch him prepare for game like i would have loved to just have been a fly on the wall to watch you know denny of dia just staring at Russell Westbrook before a game, I guess that would have been a great little story I could have written. And that kind of talks to Russell's leadership and, and how, um, how the rookies kind of got their sea legs in the NBA. So it's, it's stuff like that, that I'm going to miss. I would say that that is the biggest worry um, amongst a lot of reporters is that that access kind of winnowing and winnowing and winnowing. Cause not only it makes our jobs harder, but it makes our stuff worse. Like um, I was lucky enough to cover the Olympics over the summer and just being able to go and see things and talk to people in person, I was like, it's so much easier to write things when there's color and you've got personality and you can describe things than just sitting in kind of, well, I, I don't know if Brad was sad today. I just saw a tiny box of his face over Zoom. Like I couldn't, I couldn't tell you that. So um, yeah, I think everybody's definitely worried about that. The NBA will allow us to do press conferences in person this year. I believe they've got some kind of tiered for vaccinated media. We can go and be in person, but um, I tend to think that Zoom might be here to stay for a lot of teams just to let kind of more uh, media folks into press conferences and things like that. But as long as I can go to practice in person, I'll be happy, I think. And are you worried that you mentioned just the coverage? you think it might be homogenized just in terms of keeping that Zoom component? I mean, if everybody's on Zoom, I mean, everybody has the same access. Everybody's writing the same story. So there's just so many angles you can write about like a 20-point blowout. Um, is, is that something? Why is My question is, is, why is the league, if, you know, you know, I, today it came out that 90% of the league's vaccinated. If mm -hmm. the most majority of the reporters are vaccinated, I guess my question is from a 
public perception standpoint, why why is the NBA interested in keeping the Zoom component? I get they want to have more media there, but at the same time, I mean, it's better publicity for the league if there's more various stories out there for the fans to read, I think. Sure. I think, I mean, I think I agree with you with there's more varied stories and it was really hard to kind of cover it, especially with how many games there were last year to just do day in and day out over Zoom. Um, I think from a league's perspective, you might say like, this is something I know of from the WNBA perspective where you can say, oh, the more people that are covering us, we don't care what they're writing. The more people that are pushing us out online, especially things like blogs and social media, the better. So I, I don't know if they're coming, if the league is coming at it from that perspective, but that is one argument. Um, I'm not sure if Zoom makes things more homogenous, just because I, I know that not everybody who covers these teams has the money, first of all, to send people out to travel. I think I'll be the only traveling uh, Wizards writer this year, which really sucks. So for something like that, Zoom is great. Um, but when you do that, you really, really rely on teams. Like the Wizards are really good. They'll say, if you need this person one-on-one, -on -one, we can have them call you. You need stuff like that to supplement the Zoom press conferences because otherwise it's just going to be the absolute most boring stuff ever. Um, you need the team to you know, cooperate and say, yes, this person can come on your podcast or whatever. So you're not just using clips of them on the Zoom. So you, you know, it puts us in a little bit of the uncomfortable position where reporters don't necessarily like to rely on team PR as much, but um, you're really lucky if you if you get a good team that that kind of recognizes the need to push their guys out there, not just on Zoom once a week. Yeah, and uh, just just curious. I mean, kind of getting nitty gritty with the Zoom here, but but what do you <laughs> feel you you miss? You know, with that component. You know, I mean, obviously, uh, those of us that work at home or like have a Zoom component to our work, we we can understand how like our work meetings have changed. If our work meetings used to be in person, but how does that translate over to these interviews? Do you find it's it's harder to get? um like longer more complete answers out of athletes or, or what's kind of the main thing that you notice from that the biggest thing is that all of the human stuff in terms of like you can tell when i'm making a joke or being funny or i don't actually want to ask this question but i have to all of those kind of little social cues are absolutely gone i mean you're just you have to be i, I noticed this last year when we first started covering on zoom where people i feel like we're misunderstanding questions more oh. and, and everyone's questions got shorter and more direct and therefore worse. You didn't really have a chance to explain yourself or, or joke around, or if, you know, someone starts going down a road and you're like, Oh no, 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 that's actually not what I meant. You couldn't, because a lot of times you were muted and you couldn't jump in and say like, no, no, you, you misunderstood me or something. <laughs> All of those human elements were gone. Um, and it, on it, it made answers worse. It made, questions way um, oh my gosh we kept talking about this last year uh, it, within the beat writers group chat we were like are we bad at our jobs like all of these questions are so terrible um, <laughs> but it, it, you also kind of miss the opportunity when you're at practice you see something and then someone might not be you know coming to a press conference later but you can grab them aside and be like hey did I see what I think I said or you know tell me about that all those little details that you're not necessarily writing a story off of, but you kind of file away in your brain and you can pull it out later as, as part of a detail of a larger feature or something, that stuff was gone. And stories just got boring and stale because of it. And you had to work really, really hard to uh, to get good stuff last year. Good, good little details like that totally fell by the wayside and I, I missed them. <laughs> Yeah, and I think it's it's one of those things where I, I'm not sure I feel good about any Zoom element staying, um, you know, provided once 
things become, um, I, I guess the environment becomes more safe or, you know, whatever needs to happen for that to go away. Um, I, I also wanted to ask, I mean, you mentioned you went out to Tokyo, so I, I can't let that slide. What was that experience like and um, how long were you out there for? So I was there for about three weeks, a little over three weeks, oh, um, cool. but only because it took like two full days to come home. <laughs> I think otherwise it would have <laughs> been, yeah, typhoon season, not, not fun for traveling. It was amazing though. It was amazing mostly because, I mean, I was so worried with, you know, we're monitoring the COVID numbers in Tokyo before we go and everything like that. And I was really worried that we were going to get there and the government was going to say, sorry, you've got to cover all of this from your hotel rooms. Um, but being able to go to venues to just, again, like grab athletes on the side or talk to them in what they call a mix zone, which is like a super informal press conference where you can get guys one-on-one -on -one and, and talk to women or whatever. Um, it was really honestly invigorating. It was so much easier to write stories when you have color and you can see up close what people's faces look like. Or like I covered a couple of the Team Japan games, men, um, men's first because I was covering Rui and it was like it was their first game I believe since 1976 I think I have that right wow. um, and then of course the the women played USA in the gold medal game and seeing all of the volunteers all of the Olympic volunteers clapping very politely because you weren't supposed to cheer super loud or anything um, for <laughs> their home team was wonderful and something you wouldn't have gotten from covering from home and just talking to people on zoom so all of that stuff it was like Oh my gosh, it was like going back to Mecca, like the stories were just flowing. It made me, it honestly, it made me really much more excited for this season because I think a lot of journalists were just super burnt out covering their teams over Zoom. Um, and I was like, oh, right, my job is great. It just sucks over Zoom. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I was really, really happy to have that, that excellent experience, even though it was super weird with all the COVID rules. I got a weird question for you, Ava. When watching the Olympics, I noticed some events had more spectators even though i was under the impression maybe you correct me if i'm wrong there weren't supposed to be any spectators is that right like were some events able to have uh, some fans there so no? no events had fans but there were so like if you're talking about track where they'd cut to the crowd and you could kind of see other people like waving flags or whatever those sure. were all other athletes or volunteers gotcha. okay there were there were no spectators which was good because it was hot i mean like <laughs> It was hot and it was humid and i was like if we would have people here there would have been fainting left and right it was it was whoo it was yeah summertime <laughs> what was the environment like without the spectator element there because with the olympics that's it's a massive part you know people yeah. cheering on their country and that was completely taken away what was that for the athletes was was that an element that really disrupted their performance you covered multiple events was that a actual component into changing the outcome in some events that you witnessed or did were the athletes just focus on doing what they're supposed to do depending on the sport they're competing in? I think most of the athletes were fine because if only because they were used to it by now, they had been right. competing kind of empty or training alone, honestly, um, for so long, but it was really sad, especially like I mentioned, team Japan had a lot of really cool wins. Um, you know, they, their basketball, their women's basketball team did really well. Yeah. They, I believe one in, I, one of the martial arts, I can't remember which discipline, their um, three-on-three team had a huge upset. So yeah. that was, those were the moments when I really, really was like, man, this would have been so awesome for the Japanese people coming out of this pandemic to be able to experience this. Of course, there was a lot of controversy around uh, the Olympics in general, but it was mainly, it kind of made me feel like, oh, this is, you know, this is not what the Olympics are supposed to be. But at the end of the day, I just kept thinking, 
man, it is awesome watching people win medals. It is so freaking cool watching that and, and spectators or not, it was still, still a fantastic experience. And, um, Japan kind of pulled it off. You know, the, the numbers definitely rose in Tokyo while we were there for a bunch of different reasons, but the Olympic bubble held at least. So the government gets that win for sure. <laughs> um, Ava, I want to shift gears and ask you about the WNBA and what your impressions were overall this season, them celebrating their um, anniversary. There's some playoff mm -hmm. games that are happening as we speak right now. Um, covering the Mystics, what was your experience with that, especially with the Olympic break? Right. Um, what was just kind of your impressions of how the WNBA did this season? So I covered the Mystics very much from afar this year. My colleague Kareem Copeland was kind of their day-to-day -day beat writer, but I covered them regularly as their sole beat writer up through their 2019 championship. So I still like to stay in touch with the team and everything. I believe today the, the league sent out viewership numbers. And I, I, it was a pretty hefty spike. I could pull up the email, but um, you know, the league has done really well. And I credit a lot of that to their shift in making a different kind of players, kind of um, the focus of the league and their promo and their marketing. Natasha cloud is somebody who in DC has just fan base here is in love with her. She's super outspoken. She's very um, social justice oriented as are a lot of players in the WNBA and in the mystics. Um, they, you know, when they introduced their new commissioner, Kathy Engelberg, who really kind of found the sweet spot where previously throughout pretty much the entire history of the WNBA, they had been caught between this thing of, well, are you a sports league or are you a social justice cause? And I think Kathy Engelberg was able to thread the needle really well in getting huge financial backers. Um, you know, she came over, she was the CEO of Deloitte, so the woman knows how to get corporate backing and saying, actually, we can do both. We don't have to lose you know, it doesn't have to be either or, it doesn't have to be lacking on both. We can be full throttle into the social justice. It helps that now people are much more willing to listen and, and accept athletes who are also activists. Um, and we can also make money. So it seems to me like they found their fan base a couple of years ago. The WNBA started getting really much more popular on Twitter. That had a lot to do with that. Um, they've, they've done a good job in harnessing that. But it's, it's nice to see that I, I feel like two years ago, a lot of people would ask me like, oh, the WNBA is having a moment. And now it feels like they've really been able to sustain a lot of that growth. Um, they, they've been able to kind of capitalize on stars like Sabrina Ionescu, who was really well known in college and then goes to a, a market like New York, where it's like perfect. Um, you've got kind of veterans like Candace Parker, who are still doing their thing. She's playing in Chicago right now. Um, it seems like the W is in a really good place without knowing anything about the financials. I would just say from from kind of the outsider's perspective, um, they weathered the pandemic pretty well. I agree. I think they capitalized on the pandemic as well in mm -hmm. terms even ESPN's coverage. I think that was a yeah. massive improvement. And like you were saying on Twitter, just seeing implementations from the schedule being released or even I think they had a, just a brief ad in terms of the playoffs starting. It just mm -hmm. seems like they they get it um, in trying to gain that traction. So I think it was just a, a marked improvement on their mm -hmm. part. Um, Matt, did you have any other questions before we let Ava go? Yeah, just one more real quick. I, you know, we didn't, we haven't had a ton of guests at this point from the DC area. <laughs> so I, I always kind of like to ask, um, you know, what is DC like as a sports town? What are, what is your sense of where kind of the, the fans maybe uh, gravitate towards? I mean, is it mostly like a, a football town still with like the Washington football team or is it, um, you know, what, what is their loyalty like to the wizards who have, you know, sort of a, a checkered past, but we know that the, 
this the DC area has pumped out a lot of significant, especially youth basketball talent. I mean, a lot of prominent stars have come out of that area. Um, so I guess just your your overall thoughts about DC as a sports town, um, just from your experience. Yeah, and that's a good question because I'm also from right outside of DC. So I can give you some some personal. Oh, great. <laughs> um, I mean, this town more than anything lives and dies a little bit less. I mean, no, a lot less so in, in recent years, but especially growing up and until maybe three years ago, lives and dies with the football team. It is mm. it is Washington, even though we've got a lot of cowboy fans here too, like everybody does. Um, <laughs> it is Washington football team all the way. I mean, on Mondays in high school, everybody's wearing their then Redskins jerseys, things like that. It's, it's mostly that, especially with people who are from DC, who are born and raised here. It's a really transient city just because of people work in politics. They come in and out with administrations and stuff. But if you're from DC, you are a Washington football fan, number one. Um, oh. When the Nats came in and kind of started to gain ground, they got really popular too, um, with certainly a certain kind of uh, population in DC. The Wizards, honestly, of the, the big four teams, okay, so the Caps have a, have a small fan base also, but they are die hards. Hockey people are a different mm -hmm. breed. They, mm -hmm. they, you know, ride or die for their team. So it's it's really fun, this like I always make fun of our, our Caps reporter because she has such a rapport with all of these Caps fans on Twitter. And I feel like every single season ticket holder follows her and like knows her, but they're very like that. The Wizards definitely have work to do. The franchise as a whole has work to do to get butts in seats, first of all, and get people kind of reinvested. And most importantly, and this is what a lot of people around the league brought up to me about Wes Unsell Jr.'s hiring, was there hasn't been you haven't seen that that local talent return home. There are so mm. many good basketball players from here. You know, we know that KD wanted absolutely nothing to do with the Wizards, but a lot of people around the league to me have said to get a sign off from somebody like Wes Unsell Jr. who has that name. Yes, a lot of people will say, okay, it's a nostalgia hire, whatever. But to get that endorsement from, you know, DC basketball royalty is is really important for the franchise. And I think they're aware of that, even though they are definitely shying away from saying this guy's not his father, but um DC is a good sports town. I'm very biased because it's my hometown. You know, they we arrived late to games, just like Miami and everything like that. But uh, we're we're good sports folks. It's what we like to talk about for sure. Sports awesome. and politics. What could be better? <laughs> Perfect combo. Just yeah. uh, just on that note, do you think it's possible? with the right kind of momentum in terms of what we've seen with the, the Bucks and some other small market teams that, you know, the Wizards can push their way into being the, the number one sports franchise there or, or will football be king no matter what? I have to think football is going to be king no matter what. Gotcha. The, okay. no, the good thing about the Wizards is there's a lot of leeway to go up. Just like the Eastern <laughs> Conference, kind of the only way they, they can go is up. Um, but the, the people here also loved John Wall. I mean, yeah. really embraced him as their own. And so if they can get somebody like Brad Beal to stick around and, you know, somebody that the community knows and likes and appreciates, um, I, I don't know that they'll ever love a star, a franchise star again, like John Wall in the, in the next couple of years, but um, if they keep some of this talent around, they would, they would be on their way. Well, Ava, thank you for joining the show. Really appreciate the chats. Can you let our viewers and listeners know where they can find you on social media and then any other projects you're working on for the rest of the year as well? 
Sure. I am on Twitter at Ava R. Wallace. I am a probably the worst tweeter in the NBA. So, you know, keep expectations low, but <laughs> come for some jokes, come for some news. Um, and then, of course, you can just find everything I'm writing on, on WashingtonPost.com. we got the season coming up. I'm really excited to kind of get to know this new coach and new coaching staff and, and to tell people about him. I'm working on a big profile on him right now. So I'm excited for the start of the season. Ava, appreciate it. Looking forward to seeing your, your work and coverage on the Wizards this season. I appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you. Hey, thanks so much, guys.